create a fantastical world based on African folklore and mythology. Marlon James will tell us about his new novel, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. What hard lessons do you learn doing other people's housework? Stephanie Land will be here to talk about her best-selling book, Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and A Mother's Will to Survive. Plus, our critics will talk about the latest in literary criticism. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Marlon James joins us now. He is the Booker Prize winning author of A Brief History of Seven Killings and other novels. And his latest is called Black Leopard, Red Wolf. It's reviewed this week in The Times by Michiko Kakutani. Marlon, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So this book, people are sort of whipping out these descriptions, calling it the African Game of Thrones, calling it a magical Wakanda, calling it sort of comic books meets fantasy epic meets. But like, how do you describe it? I describe it as the book I always wanted to write. You know, I describe it as almost a, a result of detective work. One of the things we, we, we take for granted is that so many of, of us already have our mythologies. I think Michael B. Jordan was talking about it in Divine Fear, and he got some flack for it, but I knew where he was coming from. Where um, I think, I don't think we realize just how much of who we are as a people are told by our mythologies, are told by those fantastical stories. You don't realize it unless you don't have one. And for me, I can't speak for everybody else, but for me, I grew up with ground zero of my history being slavery. Mm-hmm. And I say to somebody who's written a slavery novel, I'm kind of tired of that. <laughs> I wanted to go further. I wanted to go further. So before I even had a novel, I was on a fact-finding mission. I wanted to, 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 to go further than those Anansi stories my grandfather told me. I wanted to know about the myths and the legends and the witches and the demons and the goblins and, and the fantastical stories and all these, these things that would have electrified my imagination as a kid the way Grimm's fairy tales electrified me, the way Robin Hood electrified me, the way comics open up a new world for me. I just wanted to go back there. It's weird. It's, you could almost call it a regression so much. And not really a regression, just that I went on a fact-finding mission to find my own history, and out of it came a novel. You mentioned a lot of influences there, myths mm-hmm. and folk tales and fairy tales and comic books, and I want to kind of go through all of them. What were the kind of foundational folk tales for you? Well, the foundational folk tales are the African epics, which are very similar to the Norse sagas. In the sense that they're very um, primal, they're they're told aloud, and they go back to to a pre-Christian, pre-Muslim kind of world. So the gods are fantastic. The gods also are irritable and kind of a pain in the butt. They're flippant. Their their attention spans are terrible. They have <laughs> ridiculous feuds, and it's actually people who bring some sense of calm and reason. Their stories about kings. There is an epic about a cannibal witch who dies of old age and she's outsmarted only by her daughter. It's like feminist 2,000 years before, before its time. And it was just such a body and sensual and just a different kind of world than I you know, have experienced. I mean, some of the things I found was, is how similar our ancient epics are. They have a flood myth. They all have the image of the giant serpent eating its own tail. They all have dragons. They all have fairies. You know, it makes you wonder how 
how much in common we are. Maybe we did st all stem from the same people, or human nature is just so common that even apart, we, we, we develop the same kind of imaginations. One of my colleagues here at the Book Review, Lovia Garke, she's doing like the completest Marlon James right now. She's now reading Brief History of Seven Killings. And she wanted to know when you, you, you mentioned you went on a fact finding mission. And after reading mm -hmm. this book, she said, I want to know what kind of research he did. Mm. What did you do? What was that fact finding mission? Oh, my God. What didn't I read? I read every single thing that was possible. So some of the stuff I read, I had to go back to original materials. So it's not just enough to read a book on the Dogon. I had to go and, and, and listen to interviews of the Dogon. So things like conversations with Ogomatele. Stuff like getting into all the, the Dogon and Egyptian cosmology. So I'm reading books on cosmology. I'm reading books on myth and legends. I'm reading books on the weather. I'm reading all this, all the African histories, some written in the West and some told through the African epics. So the epic of Sanjara, which is basically the Lion King. The epic of Askia Muhammad. Stories about Mansa Musa. So I, I gobble up all the histories, including the really ridiculously racist European histories, all the, the sort of present archaeological work. There is some archaeological work do, being done in South Sudan. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, or unfortunately, all the websites are in French. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I had to become an anthropologist. I had to become a historian. I had to become an archaeologist. I also had to become a skeptic of all of that. Right. You know, I had to become a religious student. I had to become a student of mythology. I had to read up on the fetishes and the fetish priests and what kind of spells work. Where? What is the significance of lightning? Where did the monsters come from? What did the monsters say about us? So I spent a good two years in research before I even knew I had a novel. And, and even when I knew I had a novel, before I knew who was going to tell it. So, yeah, I, I do research pretty exhaustively. My previous novel was the same, and the novel before that was the same. I do, I have no problem spending a year or two just immersing myself in the world. I think because when I actually start writing, I just, I usually want to write straight to the end. Mm -hmm. And not knowing my world stops me. Once you did immerse yourself in the actual writing, how long did it take you to write this? The writing took a year and four months. So you researched for longer than you wrote, actually, for yeah, this particular Usually month. I research longer than I write. Did you travel? I've been to the continent since 2013. So no, I was going on, on what I remembered from, from, from those years ago. Uh, but the, the quality of, of, of the research, the work being done in these fields are just, is just so rich and so powerful and so authoritative. It's not like if I were doing this in the 1970s where I wouldn't be able to trust anything I heard. Right. I think there's just so much fantastic work that's been done and continues to be done. And we should say that you invent a new world here in this mm -hmm. book. So I'd love to talk about that process of, of world building and, and what is the world of Black Leopard, Red Wolf? What does it look like? The world of Black Leopard, Red Wolf is as much imagined as it is borrowed. There is so much borrowed from all the imperial empires, from ancient Ethiopia, the Solomonic dynasties, from the empires of Mali, Songhai, Ghana. There is a city in my book called Congor, which is almost a street-for-street -street replication of Jenny. There is one that's a, a replication of Timbuktu. And the knowledge that I picked up, Timbuktu being at one point the most intellectual city on the planet, you know, almost the birth of the university. And that, of course, 
ends up giving the novel itself an intellectual weight, which I think some people still think doesn't even apply to Africa, which is a little ridiculous and not to mention pretty racist. Right. <laughs> so I researched intellectual history, these territories. You know, I was being wowed by what I was learning, like Benin City had streetlights. A lot of the fantastical elements in the book are actually true. And a lot of the day-to-day things are made up. I mean, Africa even had its own Vikings. They were called the Quo, and they used to raid by boat. So what, what happened is the novel almost started writing itself because of just the bounty of information that I was getting and how these countries lived, how, how these empires thrived, but also how they fell. Some fell into decline by the times the Europeans showed up. Some, if, it were, if the Europeans were British, were burnt down. When it comes to world building in a novel, in a fantastical novel, there are all these layers, right? You have the very plain sort of geographical, physical aspect of it. You have the, what are the rules if it's a magical land? And then, of course, who who lives there and, and, and who are they? And I want to talk just first about the physical lands because you have in your book what many people love in a book like this, which is maps. And how did you conceive of those? And, and were you like Tolkien? Did you draw these maps yourself? Did you come up with the concepts? I did draw them myself. I did come up with the concepts. I had very rudimentary maps before because I think the great thing about writing about New York is New York is there. The great thing about writing about 1600s Britain is that Britain is there. When you're making up Middle Earth <laughs> or, you know, or you're making up Wakanda or you're making up the worlds I'm making, you actually have to do two contradictory things. You have to spend a lot of time building everything right down to the dirt. Then you have to make it look as if you didn't. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, your book will read like a tourist manual. So I went so far as to find out where does rainforest end and montane begin, where does desert end and so on. So I had to do all of that. At the same time, with all of that huge knowledge in my head, I still had to take it to the point where, where the characters just move in the space. Did you go into this knowing this was the beginning of a trilogy? I knew it was more than one story. I didn't know it was a trilogy, and I didn't know it was a trilogy until I spoke to my friend Melina Matsukas. You know, we, and we're talking about TV shows. We're talking about films, and she she mentioned the, the t- this TV show, The Affair, and how The Affair has different points of view. The man has a point of view. The woman has a point of view, and their points of view don't add up. Sometimes, even in the man's point of view. The woman's dress would be above the knee. In her point of view, it's below the knee. Sometimes even that way. And listening to her, I'm having this this eureka moment. And she's saying, this is a great idea for a TV show. I'm like, forget your TV show. This is a novel. <laughs> <laughs> and then it hit me, this is three novels. Because I was still thinking in terms of how we usually think with fantasy. Part one, part two, part three. They pick up where each other left off. And I was like, no. I, what if it what if it moves associatively instead of linear in a linear fashion? What if it's three people telling the same story? What if, what if Rashomon were three movies? Mm-hmm. But it, I mean, there's there's precedent, of course. There's Alexandra Quartet, Jane Gardam's Old Filth is actually a trilogy of novels told from different points of view. So there is precedent, but it just struck me as a very unique and a very African way of telling the story. I remember my grandfather telling me the same Anansi story four days in a row, but each day something changed. 
And you'd be surprised how, how easy that made for a different story. You and I looking at somebody grabbing a bag of potato chips, you might think he's a glutton. I might think he's starving, even though we're seeing the same thing. So the idea of three people seeing the same thing and coming up with radically different eyewitness testimonies was really fascinating to me. So that's when I knew it was three stories. Thank God for discussions with film directors. <laughs> <laughs> so who are your three narrators across those three books? So the first narrator, of course, is Tracker, uh, a sort of a, a searcher, bounty hunter for hire, who tells the first story. The second is by, she's called the Moon Witch. She's called Sogalon in in novel. And and this is not a spoiler, but Sogolon does not end up very well and does not come off very well in book one. So it's going to be interesting if she tells book two. It's sort of like if we rewrite Othello and let Iago tell the story. Mm-hmm. So she tells book two and book three is a surprise. So people are going to have to wait. I was going to say, like, we, we know I could tell who the first two would be, but all right. So, <laughs> And do you have it all mapped out in your mind, how it's going to be from the beginning? Or did it did it emerge as you were writing this one? Um, yes and no. I I had it all mapped out because I'm an overplotter, and I will I have plot books upon plot books and diagrams and all of that. And 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 that's not even enough. In my in my in my office, I have post-its all over the wall. You don't even know what color the wall is because I I plot out everything. And here's the thing: I do all of that and promptly ignore it. <laughs> I think I just do that to clear my head because characters are people, and people do things you don't like. You know, people people do things out of the blue. People do two things we never count on. They surprise us and they disappoint us. You don't really see either coming, which is why disappointment disappoints and why surprise surprises. And when you're writing a character, at some point when they become human, you have to let them go to do things that maybe you hadn't planned. And that's how I learned that writing my second novel. And it was not an easy lesson because I had very clear ideas about what I wanted for that novel. And that's not what happened. Well, let's talk about what happened because you, you brought up plot, which I'm glad you did, because at this point, people are wondering, what is this book about? So it starts with a missing boy. So in Black Leopard, Red Wolf, a slave trader approaches a group of mercenaries who are never not connected. They had not met each other before. And gives them the very strange mission of finding a child who has been missing for three years. The child has no connection to the slaver, so that alone is suspect. The mission takes them through several months. And at the end, we know the ending because the book opens with the ending. The child is dead. So we need an explanation. The, 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 the slaver needs an explanation what happened. There are only three witnesses and each witness's testimony is a separate book. So the tracker is the first witness, and the book is basically, it's actually literally his deposition. And the other novels would be other eyewitness accounts of what happened. How did this mission go so badly that the person they were supposed to rescue, they ended up destroying? And one of your major characters is a shapeshifter. Talk about that. The leopard. Oh, man. Talk about, you know, one of the problems I find when I write novels is I fall in love with supporting characters and sometimes they run away with the book. And my second novel was a supporting character who ran away with the book. So I tried very hard not to run away with Leopard because he's a shapeshifter. Shapeshifters are cool. Yes. <laughs> you know, he changes into a leopard. He's, he's loud and boisterous and rash and he has these uncontrollable appetites and, and desires. 
there's a scene where where they're about to head out and Tracker says, you need to have a bath, leopard. So he just licks his knuckles and go, I'm ready. <laughs> Reminding you, he is a cat. <laughs> For me, he carries sort of the wilder spirit of the novel. He, to me, is like Walter Mosley's mouse, if you read the Easy Rollins stories. And if you read Easy Rollins, you can see why a mouse sometimes nearly runs away with a story. Because he's a reckless guy. He's a carefree guy. He's a guy we fall in love with, and he's bad for us. Mm-hmm. And he was so much fun to write. But he is, he, he is sort of the, you know, the sidekick, but in a way, he's nobody's sidekick. As I say, he's a shapeshifter. In a lot of African mythologies, the, the were creatures, were meaning W-E-R-E, are never canine. There are no werewolves. There were lions and were leopards and were cheetahs. I like that. That's it's the cats that shapeshift, not the dogs. This whole idea of shapeshifting too, it's like a very interesting way of of dealing with identity and and it feels like the world in this novel is also a very gender fluid world. Absolutely. People shift forms, they shift genders, they shift identities. And that that actually was a product of the research. That was not me trying to write, put a contemporary spin on a novel. That's that's the old stuff. That was finding out that there were tribes in Africa where you knew who the gay men were because they were the only men trusted to to take care of brides to be. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if I know that you're not, if I know you're not one for the ladies, then of course I'm going to trust you guarding my bride overnight. It was common knowledge that they had an actual social purpose. That's mind-blowing, especially if what you know of, of contemporary Africa is all that homophobia. Yeah, it's, it's mind-blowing knowing that there are certain African tribes, and Native American too, that there were like 10 to 14 different genders. To know that even gender is something that was assumed. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it can be either a graduation, it can even be a pause. I mean, this blew my mind. As a queer person, it was very self-affirming, I got to tell you. But it, it just blew my mind finding that out in the research, that this is, that in a lot of ways, that's the most retro element in the book. It's already there. <laughs> you know, some writers, you get the sense that they, they're constantly returning to the same themes. They're telling the same story over and over again, returning to it from different angles. And you've talked about how that, that's going to happen to a certain extent in the trilogy. But from your previous novels, it, it feels like that's not the case with you, that it looks, seems like you really try to challenge yourself to do something quite different with each book. Yeah. One of the problems with growing up, the type of reader that I was growing up is that I pretty much gobbled everything. I gobbled everything. And I didn't come across literary snobbery until a lit class. <laughs> <laughs> and I rejected it then and I reject it now. I've always read everything. And of course, the problem with that now is that I want to write everything. Right. If, if you come across any of my friends from high school, they will ask, has he written a Viking novel yet? Because <laughs> I, I promise I'm going to write a Viking novel. I'm totally doing it. But I just, I just have always had an omnivorous attitude to literature, and I think, I think it reflects in what I read, and it also reflects in, in what, you know, in what I want to write. I do think there are some commonalities in all the books. You know, for one, uh, almost all the books have women facing monstrous struggles, usually set by men. Uh, that's certainly one thing that runs through nearly all of them. But I am narratively promiscuous. I just like. <laughs> going in a different territory than I have before. I, you know, I, I mean, this is going to be a challenge for me because this is the first time where I'm staying in the same world for three actual books. 
it helps that one character is 313 years old. But but I've always sort of followed my pretty reckless attention span and just write something that's completely different from the one before. All right. Well, we'll have to wait two more novels before we get to that Viking novel, hopefully in time for like a major <laughs> high school reunion for you so that you can <laughs> go back and say you've done it. I don't know. My high school reunion would be like Heather's. <laughs> for many of us. Marlon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Marlon James is the author of A Brief History of Seven Killings, John Crow's Devil, and The Book of Nightwoman. And his most recent book, The Beginning of a Trilogy, is called Black Leopard, Red Wolf. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Stephanie Land joins us now from Missoula, Montana. Her new book is called Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. It is already a New York Times bestseller. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So how did you end up working as a house cleaner? Well, it was kind of the height of the recession in 2008 and 2009. And I was kind of trapped in this place where I needed to find a job that was within daycare hours, which is, you know, Monday through Friday, nine to five type of schedule. And a lot of the positions in those hours are not entry-level positions. And uh, a lot of the people who had been laid off were taking up a lot of those jobs, like office assistant or secretary or whatever daytime position there was. And so house cleaning kind of rose to the top as the only job that I really qualified for. All right, let's take a step back. How old were you? Sort of how did you get to this position where you didn't feel like you had qualifications and I guess most importantly, have to support a young child? So I was 30, I think at that point and or maybe 29. Mia was a year and a half old and we had been living in a homeless shelter and then transitional housing and I did you know, whatever odd jobs I could find, like landscaping. And I did, was cleaning houses and and businesses of a few friends, but nothing that was really sustaining for the long run. And, and I guess, you know, that was kind of the place I was in because I, I'd, I'd been kind of like doing whatever job I wanted to do throughout my twenties and figured I would someday settle down and, and go to college when I really knew what I wanted out of it. So my job history and my resume was mostly coffee shops and like doggy daycare and, you know, things like that. And, but I had never had any trouble finding a job before that. So when you were graduating high school, what were your family circumstances at that time? And did you look at college or was it not affordable? I did look at college and wanted to go to college very much right out of high school. And when I approached my dad about that, he said, oh, that's great. How are you going to pay for that? And I was kind of taken aback and, and surprised. And he had set up a savings account for me, but it, you know, at the time would cover 
maybe a semester or two of college. And, and so I just decided to go to work and wait until I knew exactly what I wanted out of a college education and before I even started. You didn't really have anyone to fall back on when you were trying to basically make ends meet with a, a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter. No, not at all. And I, I honestly felt like my family kind of turned their backs on me, not only not having anyone to fall back on. What about Mia's father? He was angry. I think he felt kind of forced into that situation of being a father. And I think he blamed me for a lot of his hardship and having to pay child support and having to arrange his schedule for visitation. And and so Mia suffered because of that. Did he not want to have her? I mean, did he want you to terminate the pregnancy? He did, yeah. And I decided to not do that because I, I guess I figured he would come around. My parents got pregnant with me when they were 19. And I, I guess I, I just kind of assumed that eventually he would be happy about it. You know, when she was born, he, he was great for a couple of months. And then it just kind of went sour. So the advantage of cleaning houses to get by was really the, the flexibility, right? But according to you, one of the things that makes this kind of work so difficult is the unpredictability of it, right? I mean, there's no protection for you. What happens when people would go away for vacation or decide that they didn't need you any longer? There isn't anything like severance or or anything like that. How did that affect the way that you were able to budget things, the way that you were able to sort of plan for childcare? It affected me very deeply. I mean, to a lot of people, house cleaning is the first thing to go if they need to stay home for the day, or even if they need to tighten their budget, you know, it's an extra kind of treat. And, and so I felt like I was very disposable in that sense. And I don't think my clients really understood that by them canceling on a whim, you know, I could possibly not pay rent that month. Did you ever feel like they saw you as a person? Some of my clients did. I mean, there's, there's some clients in the book that I actually name instead of just naming their house. And those people recognize that, you know, not only did my time have value, but that I worked very hard. Did working in these homes and sort of being in these people's lives in this intimate way, did it make you more class conscious? I imagine that it would be hard to kind of not feel resentful or or angry. Yeah, sometimes I think I felt that way. I, I mostly felt sad, I, especially in houses that had kids mm-hmm. and had bedrooms set up for their daughters that were just like, they looked like they were out of a catalog and, you know, fairy tents and toys and and all of these things. And, and some of the rooms were as big as our studio apartment that we lived in. And I felt devastated in those times that just to see the type of life that Mia could possibly have. And I wasn't giving it to her. And that felt like a failure on my part. At a certain point, you ended up in a homeless shelter. And also, at one point, I think seven different kinds of government assistance sort of 
I think from the outside, people think like, how does that happen? You know, like, didn't your your parents wouldn't swoop in your Mia's father couldn't provide more help? Like, what got you to that place? And how hard is it to get out? Oh, man. So Mia's dad had had kind of kicked us out. And I went to stay with my dad for a few weeks. And that didn't work out. And we found a homeless shelter to stay in. And that was the only place that I found that I could afford because I had 200 bucks or maybe like a hundred dollars at that point. And you can stay there for 90 days and you're supposed to kind of get back on your feet at that time. And that was impossible. And so we went into transitional housing, which was kind of a step up from the homeless shelter. So the rent was income-based, you know, whatever I could pay, basically. I started going to school and did whatever I could just to pay the bills. What were the different kinds of government assistance and how hard was it to navigate the system in order to get that help? Well, at that point, you could apply for one thing and it would qualify you for several others. Now that is very different. You have to apply for everything separately. You need a computer and access to the internet. You need a printer. You need time out of your day to go meet with your caseworker, which is usually during the work day. You need a phone. Like There's so many things. So at that point, I was on, I got the Pell Grant through school, which paid for my tuition. And I had Medicaid for Mia. I got a child care grant temporarily. And food stamps and WIC check, which is women, infants, and children. There's a program called LIHEAP, which pays for utilities. It it sounds like a real catch-22. I mean, in order to really qualify for all of this, you have to know about it. You need to have access to, as you pointed out, not only to computers, but also just to the information and basic literacy skills to navigate all of this. I imagine that not everyone in your financial position is equipped to manage all of that. No, and I found that caseworkers aren't necessarily always forthcoming in what resources there are. I had a lot of help through my advocate through the domestic violence center that was in town. They had flyers printed out. They had all of these scholarships that they knew about. And so they really helped me in just finding resources. And so a lot of the times it was kind of pounding the pavement and walking to different offices and just getting myself set up so that I could focus on my kid and work and school. But it it took a lot of time to get everything set up. I mean, it it was, at some weeks, it was a part-time job. So you're handling all this paperwork. You're going to school part-time. You're working. What is this like for you as a parent? I mean, how how sort of emotionally and physically available did you feel like you could be and how much time did you have? I I really didn't feel like I was connecting with her a lot of the time. I That was one of the reasons why I started writing in like an online journal um, mm-hmm. or a blog. Or um, I tried to sit and force myself to write for 10 minutes a day and keep a record of moments of connection that we had because to me like looking back at the last month it felt like 
we were kind of roommates in a sense. Like I just, we kind of orbited around each other and didn't really have moments of connection. And sometimes we did, and I was just so exhausted. I, I wasn't even there to really appreciate it. So I started writing about it. How old is Mia now? She is 11 and a half. And so when you were writing this book, did you think as you were writing it, did you think someday she's going to read this? Yeah, I I thought about that very much. I tried to write scenes through her eyes, I guess, and tried to keep the focus very much on, on my story and my reactions to what was happening around me. I think there were some things, you know, that I had to talk about just because it was such a struggle for me in parenting her. But I, I tried to keep in mind that she wasn't even going to be reading about herself. She was going to be reading about her dad and what happened with him and our relationship. And I, I've talked to her quite a bit about it, or I've tried to. She's reading the book right now. And so I kind of try to bring it up like, hey, so what do you think? And she's like, it's fine. And <laughs> it's like, but what do you think? Like, she's like, it's fine. It's great. And I'm like, okay. And I'll be right here if you want to talk about it some more. I think it's not really going to hit her until she's maybe older and, and she can see the big picture. And I tried to write it out of love for her. I, I tried to focus on what an amazing kid she is and just plainly write about what we were going through instead of trying to tell her story. How did you get to writing this book from, you know, that that time where you're working around the clock, basically, and blogging on the computer to sort of get by emotionally, psychologically, intellectually? How did that become this book made? Well, I, I ended up going to college at U of M in Missoula and got an English degree and treated it like an undergraduate creative writing degree. Like I, I went to every writing workshop that was available, took, you know, anything and everything that I could to make it a creative writing degree. And in one of those workshops, I started this essay called Confessions of the Housekeeper. And my classmates, like they, they had no idea what to do with this essay. Like I'm a single mom talking about scrubbing toilets and they're writing about their year abroad. And Mm -hmm. like, and so when it was workshops, my professor, he is David Gates. He's, he's a pretty well-known writer, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So he kind of like, yeah, he sat back and, and he read one of the paragraphs from the essay, which he had never done before. And he just like dropped the paper and, and just said, solid gold, man, solid gold. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, and so I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'm onto something here. And then when I graduated college, I started freelancing full time and, and saw a call for submissions through Vox Media and sent them those two paragraphs and said, I wrote an essay in college and you might like this. And they immediately accepted it. And that essay went crazy viral. And my agent contacted me during all of that time. And 11 months later, we had a book deal. So long answer to that question. but That was how the book came about. What is it that you most want people to know about what it's like to be a maid? And, and perhaps as they have their own houses cleaned by someone 
Well, I would have to say that they're human beings and, and they depend very much on that work and they are allowed to call in sick. Like, and you know, that was one part of it that I was scared if I called in sick or canceled my clean that I would be fired. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was this huge inconvenience that I couldn't clean their house on that day. And so they would go for someone more reliable and, I'm a human being with a family that I need to take care of and working for very little and not allowed vacation days or health benefits or anything like that. And so I, any small act of kindness went a long way or just recognizing that I also have needs. Well, it's an incredible story. The book, again, is called Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive by Stephanie Land. Stephanie, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Joining us now to talk about the latest in literary criticism, our critics, Dwight Garner, Jen Salai, and Parl Sagal. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hey, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. Dwight, what did you write about this week? Well, you know, the great Elizabeth McCracken has a new novel out. It's, it's just her third, and it's been an 18-year wait since her last one. The first one is called uh, A Giant's House, or The Giant's House. came out in the mid-'90s. Just one of the, one of the beautiful books of, of my reading life. I just, I just loved it. It's about a librarian who falls in love with a, with a, with a young boy who's very tall and dying of, of gigantism, I believe the disease is called. Just a beautiful book. Her second novel came out seven or eight years later called Niagara Falls All over again. And this is the first one. The new one's called Bowl Away, and it's just out. You know, I don't like it as much as her previous fiction. I mean, I was depressed to, to find that to be so. It's a book about bowling. It's a book about candlepin bowling, which is a, a New England, you know, regional variant of the sport. I know you guys are all big bowling fans and, you know, want to hear me talk about bowling, but it's, it's an unusual kind of bowling. But her story covers several generations. It's a historical novel, a woman who opens a candlepin bowling alley in New England in the early part of the 20th century. And it's just one of those novels in which all the characters have unusual names. Everyone has unusual hobbies. Everyone's kind of strange. A lot of supernatural things happen. I found nowhere to dig in to the novel personally. The characters didn't resonate because they were too like caricatures more than characters. And the plot didn't quite grab me. And yet Elizabeth McCracken can write. And so there's there, there are many nice passages. And the sentences, you flagged a lot of that. The sentences. Yeah. She's a lovely writer. This book reminded me, as I said in my review, of sort of the lesser work of, of terrific writers, but uh, writers like Salman Rushdie and Annie Prue and uh, Michael Andace and others who, in their lesser stuff, kind of get caricature-like. The, 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 everyone's sort of a, a comedy piece and sometimes. She wrote a memoir, right, in, in that 18-year period between novels? Yeah, it's called An Exact Replica of a Figure of My Imagination, I believe. And it's about a child she lost in the ninth month of pregnancy while living in rural France. It's a lovely book. And and some of the deep feeling from that book translates into Bolaway. Some of the best parts in of her new novel are about women who have lost children. And she writes very well about that, very movingly. So she's somebody who I've, I've heard about for years. And she's sort of like a writer's writer in, in a way that I feel like a lot of the writers I love really revere her and read her. What is it about her, you think? That is so distinctive. Oh, she just has uh, has a sort of unique, sort of unfiltered access to the human heart, to put it in a, in a simple way. Um, that sounds a bit pretentious, I guess, but she writes so well just about human feeling. Mm. You know, when, when her characters love someone or, or when they are lonely or in distress, you kind of feel that loneliness and you feel that distress. And whatever access she has to those kind of emotions are, are I find, unusual 
And she's just great. So it's always, as a critic, it's always a drag to not like a book by a writer you really like. It's always a yeah. bummer. Well, I think this is the thing sometimes people don't understand about critics or criticism is there's actually a feeling of disappointment when something doesn't work out. Sometimes I'll have a feeling of glee, right. you know, but by and large, especially if it's if it's something by someone I love, I desperately want it to work. I want to have that same feeling and that same connection. What was the last book you them. reviewed? Negatively by a writer you loved. Uh, remember? One? I mean, I think this week. I mean, I, 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 so I reviewed Janet Malcolm's book, Nobody is Looking at You. It's a collection of essays. It's a critic writing on a critic. A critic well. writing on a critic, <laughs> writing on some critics in this case. Um, and I just, I revere her. And I, I didn't dislike this book, but it disappointed me. And once in an email, you, we were talking about books, Dwight, and you said, we were talking about who's going to cover a book. And you said, I'm getting, in capitalized, that sinking feeling. <laughs> and, and I kind of had that sinking feeling as I was reading some of the essays in this book that are not as strong or don't sing in the way that I, I wanted and expected them to. So the review becomes this delicate place to sort of telegraph your love and respect for the, for the writer and at the same time communicate very honestly about why this didn't work and then to figure out why. Um, the book, again, is Nobody is Looking at You, Essays by Donna Malcolm. So how does this Malcolm book differ from her previous collections of work? Well, this Malcolm book follows two previous collections. And it's interesting because she doesn't really return so much to her signal obsessions, photography, certain writers that she returns to. Uh, it's, it's, it's more of a gentler book. She writes a lot more about New York. She writes a little bit more around the edges of these pieces. You get a glimpse of her family life. I mean, it's less concentrated. It's less forceful. I think, than some of her previous books. But the point I make in my review is that Malcolm has this reputation for being this great slashing critic. You know, she's got these amazing pronouncements on her profession and everybody else's. You know, she's always digging out issues of hypocrisy and blundering and exploitation. You know, she's the one in The Journalist and the Murder has this great sort of line, which I'm going to mangle here, but any journalist who's not too stupid or full of himself knows that what they're doing is morally indefensible. But this book is interesting because you see her that's more. All. That's all. Actually, we can just leave now. But but, but in this book, you see her in a, in a more sort of like, you know, praising mode. You see, you know, I, I I think for me, I've always felt that Malcolm is only so good on on malice because she has such an internal sense of goodness too. And I think that we get to see her on innocence and on decency and these other kinds of qualities that are very interesting and important to What her. did we learn about her that might surprise us? I mean, the light side of Janet Malcolm. The light side. I, mean, I would not call it light. <laughs> Sounds like a record. It, the light side of Janet Malcolm. Gentler. I mean, I don't know if you learn a particular thing about her, but you do see her in this mode, you know, where she is effusive, where she's rapturous. And, and some of those essays don't quite work for me. I feel like when she, Janet Malcolm, for me, is at her best when she is cold-bloodedly making a case, you know? and This is why, if you're a journalist, yeah. you know, it's like like being a politician. You, you don't want to hear Robert Mueller is on your tail. As a journalist, <laughs> the worst phone call you could get is, Janet Malcolm's writing about you. <laughs> I got the sense that part of what you disliked about this book or were disappointed by was not just the sort of the nature of the praise, but what she was praising yeah. felt like didn't right. merit. Right. It felt small, and I don't think that anything in life is small. I think you can talk about anything. Anything is a worthy category, but she doesn't elevated in that sense. She's not making a case for their importance. She doesn't fully open up why, for example, she's you know very interested in the mystery novels of Alexander McCall Smith. You know, she doesn't really, really make a deep sense of why they deserve the kind of praise she sort of lavishes at them. So these were my these were my quibbles. But at the same time, you know, I do leave that book for all my disappointments, feeling so grateful that we have another Janet Malcolm book, you know, that we get to see the arc of this career go on, see different sides of this writer. So there's a lot of gratitude. 
two somewhat disappointing books by writers we admire and Jen. And a book that I really loved by a writer that I hadn't read much before. So the book I reviewed this week is Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. And it's, as the title suggests, it's a book about what happened at the Chernobyl nuclear plant in April of 1986 when there was essentially a partial meltdown of the core. And so this is a book that looks at what led up to the disaster as well as what ensued in the decades afterward. So it's a combination of historical research into the archives. He also talked to a lot of the people who survived. And he really weaves together these different elements into a story that's just completely compelling. I mean, you know, I hate to say it's thrilling because that sounds like it, it's, it's making light of an issue that obviously was incredibly awful and horrific. But the moment of the disaster, at the point at which he gets to that part in the book, he's already given you sort of a primer on nuclear fission. So you have at least a very basic understanding of the elements at play and what might go wrong, and then they all go wrong. He spent, I think, more than a decade working on this book. He initially started working on it because he went to Chernobyl in 2006 on the 20th anniversary to talk to some people and then took it from there. He really started digging and digging and digging. And, you know, as he was doing that, you know, he looked into some archives that were being declassified. And, you know, some of some of the stuff that he found there, he found very helpful. But as he makes it very clear at the end of the, his book, also, a lot of records were destroyed. Some of the records were perhaps purposefully misleading. So he had to find corroborating sources. He talked to people who lived in the nearby town of Pripyat. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that was the town that housed the people who worked at the plant as well as their families. And it was a town of 50,000 people that, you know, now, I mean, as in pretty much the entire exclusion zone, which constitutes, I think, a thousand square miles around the plant. Technically, it's uninhabitable, but there are people who do live there. But Pripyat is abandoned. And The Guardian did a piece about the older women of Chernobyl. Oh, really? No, I don't know There's a whole group of older women that either grew up there of some connection with it. They just moved back. And yeah. they call it the grandmothers of Chernobyl. They're kind of like, you know what? I have so many years. Yeah. This is still my home. Well, this is what right. I know. And they're like living there with a couple of like radioactive dogs. Right. <laughs> well, that was it's amazing. Thing. Yeah, it it's is still amazing. home. You yeah. Know? Well, so I have a question. So in your review, sure. you point out that there are a bunch of like other books that have been coming out about Chernobyl. Was there a sense that this book brought some really different information to light, something new? For me, what was new in the book, because other people have talked in terms of the historical and political context of what allowed Chernobyl to happen. You know, the the way in which the Soviet government pursued, aggressively pursued this nuclear program in such a way that really cut corners because they had to save money. And then on top of that, because of the secrecy, because of the creaking bureaucracy, you know, all of that stuff made for a system that turned out to be incredibly brittle. And so... Higginbotham, he also adds some of the eyewitness testimony, which we've seen in some other books as well, but he adds the reporting that he's done talking to people directly. He's also uncovered some people that I didn't know about. You know, there was a woman, I I didn't mention this in the review, but there was a woman who was the chief architect of Pripyat, and 
she really helped with the evacuation. She stayed put pretty much the whole time. She's, she was really this astounding woman who wasn't allowed at the time to apply for official membership, I think, in the Communist Party because of something her father had done, perhaps. But, you know, just to sort of convey these life stories, I think, was also really interesting. And also to show the different ways in which people responded to the disaster. Because, you know, what happened at the time, nobody necessarily even knew really what was at stake. Because also the way that radioactivity works, I mean, you don't, you don't know. I mean, that, I think that, and that's another thing that he really gets across really well, which is the sort of uncertainty of it. So the official death toll about five months after the accident was 31. So those are pretty much people who died from acute radiation sickness or directly from the explosion. And, you know, that doesn't count however many people's lives were put at risk because of, you know, radioactivity in the area. Jen, I think this may be the most enthusiastic review of yours that I've ever read. And really? I'm curious. Yeah, one of them. Is there a particular challenge to writing, just an over-the-top kind of rave when you just love something and want to convey that? Um, when you write negatively about a book or if you have mixed feelings about a book, I, I do think that you can sort of set up a, a tension that doesn't easily exist in a rave. You know, in this case... I really loved reading this book, even though parts of it are very, very distressing and very upsetting. But writing about it, I think part of it was also the story, even though a lot of people know some of the details, I I think the story is also just so fascinating that he tells. I don't know if any of it is really that easy, but I feel like... All writing is hard. All writing is hard. (laughs) So that people know what it is, Jen, what was the name and author again? The book is Midnight in Chernobyl, and the author is Adam Higginbotham. And Pearl? Nobody's Looking at You by Janet Malcolm. Bowl Away by Elizabeth McCracken. All right. Thanks, all. Thanks, Thanks. Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.